Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 16, The Battle of the Nile. Welcome back, everyone, and I hope we all enjoyed a safe and festive new year. I feel like there's really no better way to ring in 2023 than to give a little mini state of the podcast as we stand right now, just over five months into the story of Napoleon Bonaparte and where I'd like to take the podcast from here. When I started the Titans of History, I honestly had no idea how long I would continue to do this. I've always wanted to do something of this sort, but I wasn't sure how successful the podcast would be or what many would think of it. Now, obviously, I'm not anywhere near where I'd want us to be, but I think it's important to touch on the victories that we've seen thus far. After dropping my first episode, The Island Boy, we had less than 10 downloads on the first day across all the major platforms. And while this is still the most downloaded episode to date, the time in which it's had as a published episode certainly has helped those numbers grow quite a bit. But steadily, each and every episode has grown with more and more downloads. Our most recent supplemental episode, which hilariously enough, I mentioned at the start that it would be a quote-unquote mini-episode and ended up being my third longest of the entire series, so go figure. But that had over 120 downloads on the first day, a 1,200% increase from the first episode. It's incredible. And at that rate, I'm hoping that we do a 2023 retrospective. We could get over 1,000 downloads in a day, and that would be a goal well worth achieving. And God willing, we're trending on some of the top history podcasts on all the platforms, which for me would be an incredible honor. None of that, of course, is possible without you all. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. We're getting there, and honestly, I couldn't be prouder. So thank you so much. Now, in terms of the listeners that we've had, in under half of a year, we're creeping close to 6,000 downloads all time with listeners on every continent except Antarctica. Our top five countries are, in order, the United States, the United Kingdom, Ireland, Australia, and Belgium. Now, I'm sure many of our Belgian listeners will be anxiously awaiting their return to the stage as Napoleon gets ready to turn the Revolutionary Wars into the Napoleonic ones, but... We will be getting there shortly, I assure you. But I digress. My main goal for this podcast was to educate as many people as I could on a man I've always had a deep fascination with, among others. If I'm able to help inform even one person a day, I'd call it a life fulfilled. And to know I'm doing this to, so far, hundreds and maybe in the future gasp thousands, well, that is a life well fulfilled and then some. Now lastly... As I mentioned over the course of the previous few episodes, we are going to be launching our website in January of 2023 in the next coming couple of weeks, along with the much-anticipated social media pages. Now, I know that social media portions of this would obviously be the easiest to launch. Duh, welcome to 2023. But for someone like myself who hasn't had personal social media pages in quite a few years, well, getting back into them is something I was a little hesitant about. 
but I know this is the best way to get in touch with our growing following as well as to listen to as many requests as I can about improving the podcast for future episodes as well as for future historical figures. So I decided to bite the bullet and go ahead with all of them. So more to come over the next few weeks, but please do be on the lookout for the launch as I'm very excited to get that going. I hope everyone is not too critical of it. It's my first ever website, so I'm sure there will be a lot of growing pains. But hey, just like this podcast, you have to crawl before you can walk. So we're going to crawl and walk together. So again, thank you all for making the second half of 2022 an unforgettable one for me personally. And I can't wait to see what 2023 brings for all of us. I know 2022 was obviously a difficult year for many people around the world. So if this podcast has helped anyone escape your troubles for a few minutes a day, I am certainly grateful to have helped, if even just a little bit, in doing that. Now, again, with that said, let's get into the battle that made Horatio Nelson a hero throughout Europe and made Napoleon a landlubber for the remainder of his Middle Eastern campaign, the long-awaited Battle of the Nile. After Napoleon's victory in the Battle of the Pyramids and his unopposed entry into Cairo, he immediately set up his headquarters in the Egyptian capital. Comparing much of his conquest to that of his great hero, Alexander, Napoleon immediately set to work to win over the Egyptian general population, much of whom, like the Italians before them, were tepid in their acceptance of yet another foreign invader. Napoleon instructed his soldiers to respect the culture of the Egyptians, particularly when it came to the religion of Islam. And Napoleon himself would write in his later years that he had a profound respect for the religion, half-jokingly saying that he nearly converted to Islam while in exile on Elba. Quote, They tore more souls away from false gods, toppled more idols, pulled down more pagan temples in 15 years than the followers of Moses and Christ had in 15 centuries, he wrote in reference to the Muslim iconoclasm after their conquest of Mecca in 630 AD. He consulted with the local sheikhs, paid his respect to the Quran and its teachings, and made attempts to introduce French science with the local elites to help foster a sort of collaboration in order to win over the public at large. But most importantly, Napoleon tried to portray himself and the French army not as conquerors, but rather as liberators. Indeed, this helped win him public support initially. Again, as we mentioned back in episode 15, the local Egyptians loathed the Ottomans and the ruling Mamluks with similar disdain, both for their taxes as well as for the simple fact that they were not, well, Egyptian. Now, it is likely that they were happy the French were able to do away with them, but when Napoleon began to impose taxes and issue his own edicts, his popular support waned considerably, and the French quickly became to be seen not as liberators, but rather just another form of master. Napoleon's supposed respect for their culture and customs also soon came to be seen as more out of practicality rather than of sincerity. Now this, of course, would be a recurring theme in Napoleon's life. And indeed, Napoleon was never one to shy away from using some good old iron fisting when small rebellions broke out in and around Cairo, showing little remorse for the people who wanted to keep their culture the way it was. As Muslim cleric Abdullah al-Shaqwari put it, quote, the French are materialistic, libertine philosophers. They deny the resurrection and the afterlife and the prophets. Even Arab historian Abd al-Raham al-Jabarti, who greatly admired the French's military tactics and weaponry, despised their atheism and gladly welcomed the jihad imposed against them by the Ottomans shortly after their entry into Cairo. Now, there is obviously little doubt that ignorance played a large part on both sides here. As I've mentioned a few times already, the Egyptians were living a present in the very distant past. 
Napoleon quipped at one point that many of the locals had never even seen a pair of scissors and that they were more impressed by the buttons that the soldiers wore rather than the money that they were willing to spend. Now, the French, on the other hand, were flabbergasted at the thought of polygamy. And while Napoleon himself was well aware of the practice, for many of his soldiers, the idea of marrying multiple women was seen as a societal faux pas at best and egregiously criminal at worst. They were also surprised when they discovered that Cairo had no water mills and only a single windmill, using it to mill their grain with the outdated practice of using stones pulled by cattle. Both were also curious of the other's clothing, and it has been said that had Napoleon adopted a more conservative form of Middle Eastern-style dress, he likely would have been more warmly received by the population. But <laughs> let's get to the bottom of it. For the average French soldier, perhaps the biggest thing that they had to gripe about was the fact that, unlike in socially, hmm, let's say, flexible Italy, Egypt had no such available vices. As Napoleon later put it, quote, there was no wine, no forks, and no countesses to make love to. And as such, the attempts of both sides at making an amicable union, regardless of the intentions, have to be taken with a grain of salt. The Ottomans, though, they cared little about Napoleon's supposed attempts at liberating their subjects or making nice with local imams. Sultan Selim III quickly issued a jihad against the French expedition, essentially providing the absolution of any local resistance against the French in their holy fight against the new invaders. Selim made it his personal goal to expel any French army or influence from his realm, but after watching how inadequately equipped his Mamluk subjects were in handling the French army, he knew that he needed foreign assistance in making that happen. And so, enter old friend Great Britain and our subject from last week's supplemental, Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson. Backing up a little bit, while Napoleon was busy disembarking at Alexandria, Nelson nearly caught up to the French fleet, but was unable to make all the important contact. On July 19, 1798, the British had reached Syracuse in Sicily to resupply, and two days later, Napoleon was busy routing the Mamluks before entering Cairo. When news reached Nelson that Napoleon had been campaigning in Egypt, he turned his Mediterranean fleet around and headed for Africa. Now, as Napoleon's men headed towards Cairo, he ordered Admiral Bruys, who was at the time anchored at Alexandria Harbor, to move to the nearby Abakir Bay, which, while shallow, provided strong natural defenses along the inland harbor. Now, while Napoleon's orders did stipulate that Bruys could move to the more secure Corfu if the British were spotted, Bruys ultimately refused, believing he could provide adequate naval support from Abakir Bay, as well as to defend the French positions there due to the natural defenses the bay provided. But despite significant opposition from others in the Admiralty and orders from Napoleon on July 30th to move the fleet to Corfu, though in Broy's defense, Napoleon's couriers were killed en route by Bedouin raiders, Broy's made the fateful decision to keep anchor at Abrakir Bay as he believed it would provide the best line of defense at confronting Nelson. It would be a decision he took to his grave. So with that established, let's set the stage and talk about Abrakir Bay. The bay today is situated between the village of Abukir to the west and the town of Rosetta to the east. And the bay is where one of the mouths of the Nile empties out into the Mediterranean Sea. Now at the time of the battle, the bay had prominent rocky shoals, which extended from both its western and eastern ends, which created two enlarged promontories and helped to provide the additional natural defenses we talked about in the event of an attempted entry by the enemy. 
Now, a small island, now known as Nelson's Island, was also garrisoned by French soldiers and their artillery, which helped to provide additional defenses along with the promontory. Both the promontories and the inland of the bay were shallow, only about four fathoms or eight meters deep, so the French believed that any attack would have to come head-on and that their line would essentially be unbreakable due to the shallow water behind it. But this would prove to be a massive miscalculation on the part of the French Navy and something which worked to the advantage of the British, which we'll talk about in a second. Now Nelson, who, remember, by this point was not quite the legend he would ultimately turn out to be. He was a well-respected naval commander, absolutely, and was known to the French, but it wasn't exactly at a point in his career where Napoleon was losing sleep over hearing his name. But that would change quickly on the 1st of August, 1798. After a landing in Egypt, Nelson arrived in Alexandria only to find that the French had largely abandoned the city, save for a few merchant ships. But Nelson knew that their presence meant that the larger fleet must be nearby. And so he sent his smaller ships to scout the area in order to locate them, while also being able to keep the element of surprise. At 2 p.m. on August 1st, lookouts from the HMS Zealous spotted the French fleet anchored at Abakir Bay, initially reporting that there were 16 French ships to the line, though in reality the French attack line consisted of 13 ships, but it did include the French flagship, the 120-gun Le Orient. Now, at around the same time, the French scouts also spotted the British fleet, again, incorrectly underreporting the total number of British ships, but that didn't end up being their biggest error prior to the battle. Broy's not expecting an immediate attack, had left many of his soldiers on shore to help build defenses, and thus he didn't deploy any of his lighter warships to act as preliminary scouts. A critical mistake, as the French were left completely blindsided, yes, pun intended, when the British appeared. It would be the first of two massive blunders that doomed the French before a single shot was fired. Now, having said that, the French still had reason to be confident in the event of an attack. They did outgun the British. Of the 13 French ships of the line, 9 had 74 guns, 3 had 80 guns, and the aforementioned Orient had 120. The British, by comparison, had 15 ships. 13 had 74 guns, 1 had 50, and the HMS Moutin, a small sloop of war, had only 16. Now, the order of the battle is important here, so please try and stay with me, and I will repeat them twice. The French line was comprised of the following ships from top to bottom, that is to say, west-east if you're looking on a map, in between the shoals. They were, in order, Gouillère, Conquerant, Spartier, Aquilon, Beaupel Sauveron, Franklin, Le Rorion, Tonon, Heroux, Mercury, Guillaume-Tel, Généraux, Demoléon. Again, ship one, Gouillère, Ship 2, Conquerant. Ship 3, Spartier. Number 4, Aquilon. Number 5, Boupel Sauveron. Number 6, Franklin. Yes, named after Benjamin Franklin, by the way. Number 7, L'Orient. Number 8, Tonon. Number 9, Hérault. Number 10, Mercury. Number 11, Guillaume Intel. Number 12, Généraux. And number 13, Temeléon. Boy, my French is going to be getting a workout today. Given that Broyes anticipated a British attack head-on, he positioned Orient at position 7, that is, directly in the middle of the line, to help concentrate their main firepower at the center. Now, the British approached from the west, around the northern end of the top shoal, 
And their line consisted of the following, and again, I will repeat this twice. HMS Goliath, HMS Zealous, HMS Orion, HMS Audacious, HMS Theseus, HMS Vanguard, HMS Minotaur, HMS Defense, HMS Bellerophon, HMS Majestic, HMS Leander, HMS Alexander, HMF Swiftshire, HMS Culloden, and the HMS Mutin. Again, Ship 1, Goliath, Ship 2, Zealous, Ship 3, Orion, Ship 4, Audacious, Ship 5, Theseus, Ship 6, Vanguard, Ship 7, Minotaur, Ship 8, Defense, Ship 9, Bellerophon, Ship 10, Majestic, Ship 11, Leander, Ship 12, Alexander, Ship 13, Swiftshire, Ship 14, Culloden, and Ship 5, Mutin. Now, initially, Broyes wanted to engage the British in the open sea, but after protests from his admiralty that they didn't have the sufficient manpower to fight such a battle, Broyes decided to remain anchored at the bay. Now, since nightfall was quickly approaching, he assumed that the British would wait until morning to engage them, so he also hoped that he would be able to make an escape as night fell, ostensibly echoing Napoleon's orders to avoid open battle with the British if he could. But Nelson, as it turned out, would force his hand because he had no such intentions of waiting until the sun rose. Placing four horizontal lights at the front of their mizzen masts and raising white ensigns, the British used these markers to ensure that they could avoid friendly fire as much as possible in the dark night. With their preparations set, the British set forth with their advance. Now, Nelson's plan took advantage of favorable winds for the British. They were to advance on the French and pass down the seaward side, that is, starboard side or the right side of the ship, and engage the French vanguard in center of the line, the idea being that each of the lead French ships would have to face two British ones, while the Orient would face three. Now, Nelson knew that the wind would make engagement by the French rearguard difficult, and he wanted to use this time to inflict as much damage on the French van and center as he could before turning and cutting down as many in the rear as was possible. However, as soon as the lead ship of the British line, Goliath, rounded the shoal at around 6.15 p.m., the British were quick to notice the second critical French mistake. Between the bow of the Gorier and the western, again, top shoal, there was about a mile-wide gap separating them, enough space to pass through for a well-commanded man-of-war. And the Goliath's captain, Thomas Foley, was just that sort of commander. After the second-to-last ship of the British line, Culloden, ran aground and the rear guard stayed behind to help his sister, Foley, on his own initiative, decided to make the bold move of moving in between the shoal and Gohia's bow, wrapping around and attacking her unprepared port side. Now, the move was daring. The entire British line would be exposed to heavy French fire from both the vanguard and the promontory fortifications. But the British, taking advantage of their quick approach, were spared from major damage as the French gunners were surprisingly poor. Foley, now with a clear initiative, unleashed raising fire on the bow of the Gourier as he passed, clearing the way for the rest of the line to pass through the gap. Now, Goliath initially wanted to anchor alongside Gourier and engage her directly, but her anchor took too long to descend, and she instead engaged the second French ship of the line, Conqueron, while also ring fire on Serrieuse. In Goliath's place, parked Zealous, captained by our old friend Samuel Hood, and they engaged Gohier in direct broadside action, the lead French ship already heavily damaged from the numerous rakes she received by all the ships passing her bow. Her foremast fell in minutes to the loud cheers of the British sailors. 
Now, the third British ship, the Orion, then followed and drifted closer to shore, engaging smaller French frigates, which essentially acted as a buffer between the line and the beachhead. Now, in classical naval warfare, this was considered uncouth. You were never to engage a smaller ship if there were ships of equal or greater size within range. However, the French frigates made another critical mistake by engaging first, thus negating this rule. They were blasted into the bay with a single broadside, and Orion then rejoined the action and anchored close to the fifth French ship, Bepou Sauveron, along with firing on the Franklin. The audacious and the thesis followed, also firing on the Gorrier as they passed, and, you know, you just kind of have to feel bad for the poor sailors on board Gorrier, who just got it from every single angle here. Theseus encountered and engaged the third French ship, Spatiat, while the fourth British ship, Audacious, anchored between Gorrier and Concarron, and fired on them both because the Gorrier just could not catch a break here. With the French vanguard in complete shock, Nelson himself decided to follow the original battle plan, attacking the French starboard side by anchoring next to Spatiat as part of the British vanguard. The Theseus, noticing that their commanding officer was focusing his fire on Spatiat, as well as to avoid stray fire, moved to La Calion. The rest of the British vanguard followed Nelson's lead. The HMS Minotaur attacked La Calion, while the defense joined the double-sided attack on Pepou Sauveron. By 7 p.m., the French vanguard was completely enveloped. Next up for the British was the HMS Bellerophon. The Bellerophon, now with little need to assist at the head of the assault on the French van, sailed down the line to attack the so far unengaged French center. Now, the Bellerophon intended to drop anchor next to the Franklin, but she missed her target and had the unfortunate opportunity to engage the French flagship, Orient, head-on. With nearly 50 more guns, Orient battered Bellerophon, her crew suffering nearly 200 casualties. Now, eventually, her cable was cut and she drifted out of action, but not without inflicting a psychological blow on the Orient. During the course of the battle, Admiral Breuse was wounded in the face and hands from debris. Now, he would survive, at least for a little while longer. The HMS Majestic then followed, but she also missed her intended target and ended up being entangled with Tonon. By 7 p.m., the situation had become completely untenable for the French vanguard. By contrast, her rear guard had hardly been touched. It must have been quite an indescribable sight to see her fellow sailors a few boats up getting slaughtered while yours is hardly engaged. The Gorrier despite being throttled by every passing ship for the past hour, refused to surrender. And in fact, she would not surrender until 9 p.m. when Admiral Hood sent a boarding party to help pacify the defiant French sailors. It was a completely different story, though, for the second French ship of the line, Concarreau. She was the first French ship to surrender, her captain, Etienne d'Albarade, striking the colors while mortally wounded. The Poupelle Sauveron would soon follow, losing her anchor and slowly drifting towards the shore. Famously, Orient, mistaking her for an enemy vessel in the dark, fired upon her as she began to list towards the beach. Beaupou Sauveron would see no further action in the remainder of the battle. The British then focused their vanguard fire on the Spariat, now facing three ships. Within minutes, her masts fell, but she would continue to fight on until 9 p.m. due to supporting fire from Aquilion. Famously, Aquilion used her anchor to drive a raking broadside on Nelson's flagship, Vanguard, inflicting more than 100 casualties, including Nelson, who was struck over his previously blinded right eye. Gruesomely, a flap of skin fell over across his face, temporarily blinding him in both eyes. Nelson would be carried below deck and attended to, but at the time, he believed the wound to be fatal, 
famously crying out, quote, I am killed. Remember me to my wife. After hearing that it was just but a flesh wound, Nelson ignored orders to sit out the rest of the fight and return to duty just in time to see the final stages of the battle. The dude, to a man, was a pure badass any way you slice it. Now, while the Achilleon's maneuver provided a quick jolt to the French cause, the raking move positioned her just underneath the bow of the Minotaur, facing directly into her guns. She would be dismantled by 9.15pm, and her junior crew surrendered the ship after her captain was killed. Minotaur then moved to join the attack on the Franklin, which soon caught fire, requiring the crew to focus more energy on extinguishing the blaze than firing on the enemy. Now, while all this was going on, the Bellerophon was still getting pounded by Orion, even after having drifted away from the main engagement earlier in the evening. At around 8.30 p.m., the ship's captain, Henry Darby, ordered their anchor cut so that she could regroup away from battle. But even in her attempted retreat, she was still battered by Orion, as well as the 8th French ship of the line, Donant, the French hoping to sink at least one British ship of the line. Instead, just as she had at the start of their engagement, Bellerophon was able to inflict a lethal blow to the crew. Admiral Broyes was hit with a cannonball near his stomach, just as Bellerophon was leaving the engagement, almost slicing him into two pieces. Now, the wound was, as one might imagine, fatal. Broyes died about 15 minutes later, though he refused to be taken below deck. Orion's captain, Louis-Julien-Joseph Gassevianca, was also struck with debris in the face, with his two young sons also perishing on board. His 12-year-old had a leg torn off by a cannonball as he stood next to his father, while his 10-year-old son was ordered to remain below deck until he received orders to join the crew above. Unfortunately, he didn't realize his father had been killed, and he remained below deck just as the Orient met her fate. So, with that perfect segue, let's talk about the fate of Le Orion. The HMS Leander had stayed behind to help the stranded Culloden off the shore, but with all attempts being futile, she moved south to help join the engagement, entering the fray facing the French port side through the gap created by the now-drifted Boupoule Savaron while opening her own raking fire on Franklin and Orion. With the Bellerophon now out of action, Captain Benjamin Hallowell ordered his ship, Swiftshire, to take her place passing Bellerophon on the way and nearly opening fire on her in the darkness. But stationed between Orion and Franklin, Swiftshire opened fire on both, noticing that something was brewing on the lower decks of the French flagship. Now, though there was some debate as to when it started, at around 9 p.m., the Swiftshire noticed a small but growing fire in the lower decks of the Orion. Captain Hallowell, knowing that the fire could be used to great advantage with all the ammunition on board the ship, ordered his crew to concentrate their cannon fire on the blaze. Within minutes, the fire had spread throughout her stern and the vast sail she possessed, essentially turning the ship into a giant floating bonfire. The three engaging ships, Swiftsher, Alexander, and Orion, were ordered to stop firing and began the process of edging their ships away from the blaze, anticipating a large explosion. The crews were then ordered to close their gun doors and begin forming fire parties, which were used to help prepare a ship in the events of flaming debris flying on board. This included dousing the sails and decks in seawater. The French ships, Donon, Herault, and Mercouet, all did the same, resigned to the fact that the largest ship in the French Navy was likely minutes from becoming nothing more than a giant heap of floating embers. At 10 p.m. on the night of August 1st, the fire fatefully reached the Orient's magazine stores, and she exploded in what was described as a spectacular display. Nelson, recently returned from the medical table, was able to see the blast and later remarked at the awe of the site the largest explosion he or any survivor that day would ever see in their lives. 
Now, there were no physical engagements for over 10 minutes after the explosion. The men so shocked from the sight that they were said to have been physically unable to move. The heat from the blast was so hot, it caused second-degree burns on survivors in nearby ships. It was, in a few words, scarred into the men for the rest of their lives. In fact, the explosion was so powerful, its shockwaves ruptured seams in the surrounding ships, and its debris caused a small explosion aboard the Franklin. The young son of the ship's captain, Casavianca, we mentioned earlier, he was close to the magazines and died instantly. The legend of the young boy, however, inspired the Felicia Hemans poem, Casavianca, which goes as follows. The boy stood on the burning deck, whence all but he had fled. The flame that lit the battle's wreck shone round him o'er the dead. Now, while there is still some debate over how the fire started, its effects were never in doubt. Over 1,000 French sailors died in the blast, and less than 100 survived, 70 of them being captured by the British. But the loss of life, tragic as it was, paled in comparison to the psychological impact losing France's flagship cost. In fact, the majority of depictions that were created regarding the Battle of the Nile, both then and now, all focused on Orion's destruction, the mighty explosion of profound physical metaphor for what would soon become the Achilles' heel of the French Republic and subsequent empire. Despite her destruction, though, the French did continue to fight on, futile as it was, with her vanguard now completely surrendered and her flagship literally blown to smithereens. At 10.10 p.m., Franklin recommenced the engagement by firing on Swiftsher, her sailors still in shock from the explosion and extinguishing small fires resulting from the destruction of Orion. However, defense soon came to her aid, and with the combined effort, Franklin stood no chance, her captain suffering a head wound and more than half of her crew either killed or wounded. As midnight fell and the battle reached its second day, only the French ship Tonon remained engaged, but by 3 a.m., she was a dismembered hulk of a ship. Now, as the sun rose, you're probably wondering yourself, what about the French rear? Why didn't they even attempt to help? Well, as we mentioned earlier, unfavorable winds for the French, poor coordination among the Admiralty, but along with the fact that many of the admirals ended up dying, prevented their much-needed assistance. And save for a few small engagements and arbitrary fire, they were, to this point in the battle, merely witnesses to the carnage, having little noticeable effect on the battle at large. And that changed on the morning of August 2nd. They would see their first notable engagements, but their efforts were far too little and far too late. Guillaume Tell, Tonon, Genereau, and Temolion would engage the battered Alexander Majestic, but they would soon be assisted by Goliath and Theseus, and many of the remaining French ships of the line began to drift away, and by mid-morning, only the Herault and Mercouet flew the French colors. But both would end up running aground on the shoals after the crew cut their anchors during the Orient's explosion, and they were unable to regain control of the ships in all the chaos. Both ships were attacked, and, unable to do anything, surrendered in minutes. The Guillaume Tell and the Genereau were the only French ships of the line that were able to escape, joined by the smaller frigates Justice and Diane, though they were pursued vigorously by Zealous and Captain Hood. The British spent the remainder of the day making repairs to their ships as well as to their captured prizes. On the morning of August 3rd, Nelson sent Theseus and Leander to force the surrender of the grounded ships Tonon and Temelion. The former's crew surrendered, unable to make a manageable escape. The latter set fire to their ship and escaped ashore. Temelion exploded shortly thereafter, and she was the 11th and final ship of the line either captured or destroyed in the battle. After nearly two full days, the Battle of the Nile, 
the largest and most consequential naval battle to that point in history during the Age of Sail was over. The aftermath, consequence, and impact of the Battle of the Nile was substantial. With respect to the number of casualties, the British suffered just under 900 killed or wounded, though the total numbers of deaths on their side is difficult to say with exact certainty. They also, critically, did not lose any vessels, though the Culloden, Bellerophon, Majestic, and Vanguard were all badly damaged. This, though, paled in comparison to what the French suffered. Though it's difficult to pinpoint their total numbers of casualties with accuracy, it was apparent to both sides that they were significantly higher. Estimates vary widely, though most have the French losses at anywhere between 2,000 and 5,000 men, and nearly half of the killed came on the Orient. Nelson, surveying the bay on the morning of August 2nd, said succinctly, quote, Victory is not a name strong enough for such a scene. Now, Nelson, for his part, was still recovering from the injury he suffered the previous night. He would wear a massive scar on his head for the rest of his life and suffered from chronic headaches until the day he died. Now, locally, the victory was celebrated with jubilation by the population. Bedouin tribesmen surrounded the bay in bonfires and celebrations were held for weeks, heralding the expulsion of the French fleet. Internationally, though, the news of Nelson's victory did not reach mainland Europe as quickly as one would have expected, even for the late 18th century. Nelson did send dispatches out almost immediately, but they were intercepted by the French ship Leander during a small skirmish off the coast of Crete just over two weeks later. As a result, Britain didn't receive official word of the victory until early October. And while there had been rumors coming from the continent before then, it hadn't been independently verified. But when the news was made official, Nelson, who to that point was being castigated in the press for having, quote, failed to capture the French fleet, was feted with titles and honors befitting a conquering hero. On October 6th, he was made Baron Nelson of the Nile and Burnham Thorpe, his hometown. But Nelson, the humble man he was, was reportedly dissatisfied with the title, believing he deserved a better one. But Nelson would receive 2,000 pound pension, around 220,000 pounds in today's money, per year for the remainder of his life, and he also received additional titles from the Ottoman and Russian nobility, both thanking him for his assistance in defeating the French. And wrapping up here on the battle from the British perspective, the Battle of the Nile has been considered one of the most decisive naval engagements in the history of warfare, often compared with those of Actium, Tsushima, Trafalgar seven years later, and of course the Battle of Midway. That Nelson was responsible for two of them just further validates what kind of legacy he has left behind. His strategies taught in naval schools worldwide to this day. The battle is also remembered fondly in the UK up to the present day as one of the Royal Navy's greatest ever victories and is an important part of the national consciousness of Britain, similar to the battles of Saratoga or Gettysburg for Americans. But we're going to leave Horatio Nelson and the British Navy here for now because it's time to talk about the effects the battle had on the French, and boy oh boy, were they considerable. Now Napoleon, who for the most part of this episode has kind of been a background character, didn't receive word of the total loss of his fleet until August 14th, almost two weeks after its conclusion. Now there are conflicting reports on his immediate reaction, but most agree that he was overcome with emotion and debated his next moves. His primary concern, however, was the effect the news of the battle could have on his officers and his soldiers, many of whom were now beginning to think if the expedition was even worth the heavy human toll the French were paying. Napoleon reportedly threatened officers with summary execution if they discussed the expedition's mission in order that any local Egyptians caught gossiping about the Battle of the Nile had their tongues cut out. 
Now, back in France, news began trickling across the Mediterranean almost immediately, but official word did not reach Paris until the last week of August. Initially, the French press reported that Nelson had been killed and that the French fleet was defeated by a much larger British fleet. Other papers blamed the directory's incompetence and Admiral Villeneuve's reluctance to help Broyes from the rear guard as main factors, most of them unaware of the unfavorable winds. But whatever the political windfall the Battle of the Nile provided, the military effects were inarguable. The British instantly gained control of the Mediterranean Sea, a position that would remain for the remainder of the war. Their annihilation of the French fleet also allowed them to leave Egypt in near complete force, allowing them to reinforce their positions throughout the region, including in aiding the Maltese in their upcoming rebellion against the French. It also ensured that Napoleon's Middle Eastern campaign would now have to be land-based, and one that would be severely cut off from vital supply lines and resources in an unforgiving environment. This also included much-needed cash, much of which went down with L'Orient. Sometimes karma does hit back at you for all that looting. But Napoleon wasn't deterred. He never seemed to be. He planned on using the loss of his fleet as a strategic victory for his army as he continued his march through Egypt and consolidating his power therein. So next week, we'll dive into the remainder of Napoleon's time in Egypt as he prepares his army for recovery after this disastrous loss at sea in his attempt at pacifying a population that wanted him and his men dead at every turn. (laughs) 